I invite you uh, to open your Bible with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Esther. And as you're doing that, I want to ask you to imagine with me what it must be like today living in Ukraine with Russian planes and tanks and foot soldiers coming into your community with fears and uncertainty about what your life is going to be like in the future. The recent United Nations report documents that within the last seven months, over 12 million Ukraine citizens, mostly women and children, have fled their cities and their homes and are now living as exiles in refugee camps in Poland and Slovakia and Hungary and Romania and Moldova. It's, it's hard to really imagine what that's like. Or what if you were living in Russia under the leadership of a tyrant like Vladimir Putin? Or in the Republic of China where Xi Jinping rules with little to no regard for morality when it pertains to basic human rights? Or worse, if you were born and brought up in North Korea and had to live under the unpredictable and tyrannical rule of Kim Jong-un. Millions of people in our world are suffering today under oppressive rulers who do whatever they want without any repercussions for their actions. In our own country, to a lesser degree, there have been fears and concerns with the outcomes of recent presidential elections. Many people feared when President Obama took office. The same fears existed with President Trump, and today there are many who have fears with President Biden in office. And to all of the fears and all of the concerns that we might have, the book of Esther opens with a king named Ahasuerus, who was the most powerful man of his day, a king who was led by his emotions making impulsive decisions to the detriment of everyone living in the Persian Empire, especially to the detriment of the Jews. But God, amen, but God. As you read through this story, you discover while God is never mentioned, it's the, it's the only book in the Bible that God is never named. There's no reference to God, no word from God. There is no prophet who receives words or delivers a message from God. There's no reference to prayer. There's no reference to worship. There is no mention of God anywhere in the story. Yet God is present. And God is at work accomplishing his purposes, preserving his people. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, God the Father, my Father, is always at work, and whatever work that I do is a result of seeing and following what my Father is already doing. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of where we live, whether in Russia or Ukraine or China or here, and regardless of who is in a political office, God in his providence is in control, and he's a God who cares. You remember Providence Pro 
Ventia pro means what? You remember? Pro means before. Pro means ahead of. And ventia means to see. Thus God's providence. God sees ahead of us. And God sees to us. Most of you are familiar with the story of Abraham when God calls him to take his only son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and you remember the story as Abraham and the boy are walking up the slope and they have the wood and they have the provisions for the sacrifice and you remember the question Isaac asks his dad he says dad we we have everything we need but where is the sacrifice and you remember what Abraham says He says God will provide. It literally means God sees. Abraham understood something of God's providence. He says to his boy, God sees. He sees ahead of us and he is faithful to see to us. I want to ask you, whenever you hear, whenever you hear of some disturbing facts or you're made aware of some unexpected news and it unsettles you or troubles you, what is your first response? Initially, it might be to panic or have some anxiety or fear or frustration, even some anger. But hopefully after a few minutes, as you begin to think and pray, those initial emotions and thoughts yield to facts of faith, of trust in God and trust in God's providence. I've been preaching to myself all week praying for myself, singing in worship, trying to focus on God, to trust in him and to allow his peace that surpasses all understanding. Remember what he said in Philippians? To guard and to keep your mind, your heart in Christ Jesus. I invite you to read with me uh, chapter one of the book of Esther, starting at verse one. As we examine lessons today from a drunk king, a defiant queen and divine providence. A drunk king, a defiant queen, and divine providence. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, Susa, the citadel, Then in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and provinces, princes of the provinces being before him. And he showed off the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all, six-month party. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served 
drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bista, Herbana, Bigta, Abagta, Zedar, Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shadr, Admada, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, Menumen, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? And Memucan answered before the king and the priests, Queen Vashti has not only wronged all the king, but also all the princes and all the people who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and media will say to all the king's officials, that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan, 
Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells and abides with us and guides us into all truth. And we pray that you would speak to us in such a way that we would have ears to hear you and wills to obey you for your glory. And God, through your word, would you build us up as your people and would you build us up and strengthen us as your church, your bride, for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I provided a pretty good summary of the history of this text last Sunday, but just to make a point, I want to just review just a couple of things. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, and the Assyrians took off most of the Jews in those 10 northern tribes off into Assyria. While they're there, the Assyrians fall to the Babylonians and the Jews are still there. And so now they were initially under Assyrian rule. Now they're living in exile under Babylonian rule. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians went into the southern kingdom of Judah and overthrew the southern kingdom, destroyed the temple and destroyed the walls and took back most of the citizens from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin back to Babylon. Later, the Babylon empire falls to the Persians with the Jews still living in exile. And we know in 522 BC, all of the Jews living in the northern area which was originally Assyria, then Babylon, and then Persia, God moved in the heart of King Cyrus to give permission to any of those Jews that had been living there somewhere between 70, 80 years to as much as maybe 200 years. All of those Jews, as many as wanted to, could return to their homeland, to the promised land that God had promised to them and provided for them. They had the freedom and the opportunity to go home, back to Jerusalem, back to worship the Lord, back to the temple, to hear the law again, to live under God's rule. And historically, it's sad, but it's true that very few of those Jews had any desire to go back after living in a pagan land, a pagan territory, of pagan morals, pagan values of Assyria and then Babylon and now Persia, they had kind of become like the culture and they'd become comfortable and were living like everyone else. The Bible history is clear that there are some Jews who did go back under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And if you know your history, the 
under that wave of Jews that went back, they rebuilt the temple. And then sometime later under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, there were additional Jews who went back and they began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and began to reestablish the word of God through Ezra. However, the story of Esther is the story of those Jews exiled who remained in the northern region of Persia, formerly Assyrian Babylon. And here's the neat thing. God, while he is at work in Jerusalem and the temple has been rebuilt and God is working through the reforms of Nehemiah and Ezra and the walls are being built back up and the word of God, the law is being reestablished while God is working in the south in Jerusalem. God is simultaneously working in the north in Persia. Do you remember the main characters of the story? There are five. There is this king, Ahasuerus, his bride, Queen Vashti. You remember the villain? Every good story has to have a villain. The villain is Haman. And then the two persons, the two Jews that are mentioned are Mordecai and his niece, Esther. But the main character of the story is never mentioned. The thread running through the story is God. He is working on behalf of his people, preserving and caring for them, all of it behind the scenes, below the surface. You remember the summary to the, to the book was, through God's providence and in keeping with his promises, God positions a Jew named Mordecai and his niece Esther to preserve his people. That's the storyline. And so let's go through it together. First, I want you to consider a, a drunk king. What do we know about Ahasuerus? Well, let me share four things about this king. First, he was powerful. He was the king of Persia. He ruled from the capital city of Susa and ruled over 127 provinces. The Bible says from India to Ethiopia. He was the leader of the Persian Median Empire. He possessed all authority to, authority to rule and he was not accountable to anyone. No accountability. A few years ago, I was in a weekday morning and I was sitting, sitting in a coffee shop in downtown Washington, D.C. Minnie and I were there to visit our daughter and she and I had coffee together and she went off to work. So I stayed in the coffee shop and found myself in a conversation with an attorney and by far the richest, wealthiest county in the United States is not somewhere in California or in New York. The wealthiest county in the United States is Fairfax, Virginia. Listen to this. With an average personal income of 127000 per year. That's the average personal income in Fairfax, Virginia. And as I talked to this attorney, he said to me, in Washington, D.C., here in Fairfax County, far more important than how much money you have is who do you know? People are more concerned about seeking power than money. 
and Fairfax, Virginia. Life there is about who you know, developing relationships for the purpose of power, for the purpose of getting what you want. Ahasuerus easily was the most powerful man on the planet. And as we'll discover in the story, there are people who wanted to be in his circle, in his network for purposes of power. Not only was he powerful, he was wealthy. Verse 4 mentions his riches. Then again in verses 6 and 7, the text describes his palace. He lives in comfort with extravagant, colorful curtains made from the finest linen displayed on the walls with silver rods. The palace was supported by large, decorative marble columns. The furniture were Coverings had silver and gold woven into the fabric. The floors were a mosaic combination of glistening marble and turquoise. You can be sure that the tables and the seating were, were exquisite. The finest money could buy, covered with handcrafted dinnerware. Verse 7 mentions that the drinks were served in gold vessels with none of those vessels being the same all handcrafted, handmade. Everything in the palace was the finest money could buy with no expense being spared. Today, Ahasuerus' palace would have been featured on homes of the rich and famous. In my mind, I kind of picture it as kind of a gaudy-looking place. The king was powerful. He was rich, unlimited wealth. And then he very obviously was self-centered. While studying about King Ahasuerus, I concluded that you can, you can see the way he acts and reacts, self-centered. And I don't know how this came about, but somehow through studying about self-centeredness, I began to read about various kinds of personality disorders. And I discovered one uh, that psychologists have come up with one they refer to as NPD. NPD, and I found it very intriguing, really fascinating, because I've known and know people who have this personality disorder, but I didn't know what it was called. Any guesses to what NPD is? Yeah, narcissistic personality disorder. Do you know anyone that has that? I'm proposing this morning that King Ahasuerus has all of the symptoms, all of the characteristics. In fact, I didn't know there is a narcissistic scale. And if you read that scale, King Ahasuerus is on the high end of the spectrum. Let me describe to you a narcissist. They are initially charming, possessing lots of personal charisma. They tend to talk about themselves a lot and will usually dominate the conversation. They're often loud. They don't listen well to others. They like drawing attention to themselves. They seem self-confident. They exaggerate self-importance and are often insensitive to other people. They have to appear like they are the experts and they know more than everyone else. You know anyone with NPD? I started thinking, but perhaps there's a little bit of that in all of us. 
The psychologist I was reading from went on to explain that more often than not, those who suffer with NPD is because they were neglected or abused as a child. <laughs> Thus, Ahasuerus craved other people praising him, being recognized. He needed attention. He was powerful. He had unlimited wealth. He was self-centered. And to make it all worse, he was a drunk. Look at verse 3. In the third year of his 21st reign, he throws a party. It's a feast. And it is a doozy. It lasts for 180 days for his officials and servants. And then after six months, verse 5 adds, he throws a second party, a second feast, that lasts seven days for the remaining citizens. Verse 7 conveys that the royal wine at this party was in abundance, with the king being very generous. Verse add eight, drinking wasn't compulsory, but if you did choose to drink, you had all that you wanted. It was unlimited. It was like a solid seven-week open bar. And the Bible says each man could drink to their pleasure. Unlimited alcohol. Verse 10 says the king's heart was merry, which is just kind of a nice Bible way of saying he was pickled. He was inebriated. So who is Ahasuerus? I want to propose to you he is a scary man. He is a dangerous man. A man with unlimited power, unlimited wealth, who is a narcissist, who is self-centered, and he's drunk. Unlimited power, whatever he says happens. Unlimited wealth, he has the resources to have anything he desires. He's narcissistic. He thinks primarily only about himself without any accountability, and he's inebriated. A drunk king and then a defiant queen. Verse 9 conveys that this king is married and his wife is the queen of Persia. Vashti, her name means best and lovely. The Bible says she is physically beautiful to behold. We don't really know anything about Queen Vashti's background. We don't know when she became queen. We don't know anything about her actions. It just says of the queen, she throws a party of her own for all the women serving in the palace. Nothing is ever recorded of her conversations with anything, anyone, and she is never mentioned again after this time. But the key event leading to the crisis in the story, and every good story has to have a villain and it has to have a crisis, the key event is a pagan, powerful, rich, self-centered king, not used to ever being told no, makes a drunken request in verses 10 and 11. He issues a command to his closest descendants or assistants, and it's basically a command of three things. You tell the queen Vashti, you tell her, to come before me. Now note, in that he doesn't ask, go ask her if she will come. 
Rather, you tell her, you bring her. The second thing is you guys tell her what to wear, her royal crown. And third, she is to come and parade her around in front of my guests for all to see what I have. Again, it's because it's all about him. I, I started thinking about that command. And I'm relatively sure, like most other men who are married in this church, if I commanded my wife to do this and to wear that and to show up someplace as entertainment, I'm fairly certain I would know what her response would be. The drunken king's request is met with the king, queen's refusal, which is interpreted as defiance. Look at verse 12. The Bible says, she refused. She's not coming. The Bible doesn't say why she refused. And I read some things and about why others speculated on why she didn't come. One scholar said, well, it was because the only thing he wanted her to wear on her body was just a, this royal, royal uh, crown. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Maybe she was having a bad hair day. She didn't look her finest. Maybe she didn't want to be exploited. Uh, those are all good theories, but the Bible doesn't say why she doesn't come. She just doesn't come. And I would say to you in this story, we are not given all the facts that we would like to have, but there's enough information here for us to know what God wants us to know. When the king hears of her refusal, of her defiance, the Bible says he is furious and his anger burns within him. He means his, his anger, he's in a rage and it burns, it fumes, it heats up like coals that continue to get hotter and hotter and hotter. Are there any of you who have ever allowed your anger, you've allowed your anger to cause you to sin? Anybody? A little nervous laughter. Some of the worst mistakes I've ever made in ministry have occurred when my temper took over and consumed me and I said some things when I was angry that I shouldn't have said. Let me ask you, if there's ever a conflict between you another and another person, when there's a conflict, a disagreement, are you more flight or fight? Which one are you? Left to my sinful nature, I'm more fight. But hopefully by God's grace, we're learning to walk in the spirit instead of walking in the flesh. And by the way, sometime go over and read characteristics of living in the flesh, walking in the flesh, and then read the characteristics of walking, living in the spirit. You'll find that in Galatians chapter five, but I wasn't going to do that, but just let me, let me just mention walking in the flesh instead of walking in the spirit where the flesh our nature controls us. Listen how the Bible describes it. Now these are manifestations or works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, and listen to this, contentions. What is contentions? It means somebody's always critical, always critical of everyone else and can't get along with anyone and everything has to be their way. Contentious, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, more dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries of the like. And he goes on to say, and those who are 
characterized by those kinds of lifestyles will never make it into the kingdom of heaven. Then he talks about being led of the spirit. This rich, powerful, self-centered, drunk king is told no, something he's not used to hearing. And verse 15 adds, his word is the law. His word is the law. Whatever he says is law. Then in verses 13, you see his raging anger, and it conveys what he does. So what does he do? He pulls together his, his attendants, his advisors. I, I would say they are his yes men. Those closest to him, the Bible says, who were wise, who understood the times, and who were aware of issues regarding law and justice. Uh, I, my interpretation on that is these guys knew how Ahasuerus thought, and they knew what he thought was right and just, and so that was certainly going to be the advice they give him. Second, being princes and high-ranking officials with access to the king's presence means they had pretty good life, pretty good positions probably a pretty good standard of living with a lot to lose. <laughs> so they're simply going to say the things that the king wants to hear. Verse 15, he asks for advice. I think this is, his question is also kind of interesting. He says, what shall we do? <laughs> what shall we do? More specifically, what shall we do to Queen Vashti? Not what shall I do and not... How should I handle my wife? He's a narcissist. Everything is impersonal. He's insensitive to Vashti because everything is about him. And notice in verse 15, don't you, does it bother you when people speak in the third person? Does that bother, it bothers me. You know, interview LeBron James at the end of a basketball game. Well, LeBron wasn't on his game tonight. I'm him. That's him saying. And I just feel like, you're LeBron. You're LeBron, LeBron. You know, third person. Third person. That's how the king speaks. Just kind of irritates me. And here's the advice. This is the rationale. The queen's behavior is disrespectful of you, O king, and is harmful to all the husbands in the provinces, her behavior will cause women to despise their husbands, and it's going to result in excessive contempt. And by the way, there have been people who have used this text as, uh, as a basis for the feminist movement between women in this. You, you don't want to do that. That's, that's a terrible interpretation of this text. And so they say, oh, king, send the nation a message. Ban her from your presence. Divorce her. Get rid of her. Find a, a new queen. Find a new queen who is going to be more respectful of you and the position. And then the bottom line is your decrees, they say, oh, great king will cause all of the wives in the kingdom to honor their husbands. Doesn't that sound good? And in verses 21 and 22, this is what the king does. He sends out a message that each man should be the master of his own house. A drunk king, a defiant queen, creating a crisis in the kingdom. And before I get to the final character, let me just throw out some possible lessons from the text. Possible lessons from the text. Yes, you... 
could use this text to make a case for the danger of alcohol and drunkenness. I think you could surely use this as an example and uh, just, the, just the dangers of drinking and alcohol. I, and I've said, I used to say many to our kids when they were growing up, I've just never seen, I've just never seen any good thing come from alcohol. I've just never seen it. This is certainly an example of that. You could use this text to make a case for the reality of misogyny, certainly of how men often exploit women, some men treating their wives and other women in an oppressive way. Certainly, this text lends itself for that interpretation. You could use this text to Make a case for what happens in marriages when couples don't communicate. Why didn't Ahasuerus and Queen Bashi just get together and communicate and work out their misunderstanding? You could make a case from this text that having godly friends around you, relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and how important it is to have people around you who are willing to speak the truth into your life. You could certainly make a lesson from that. You could use this text to demonstrate the, the consequences of living in the flesh, of living in sin, walking in the flesh with pride and self-centeredness and how that destroys relationships. And by the way, let me just throw this out for you to think about. The measure, the quantifier for a godly life is not how much Bible you know. The demons know scripture. Satan knows scripture. The measure, the criteria for whether or not you're living a godly life is not how much Bible you know. As important as that is, the real measure is relationships. What is the quality of relationships in your life? You see, there's some people today, and it concerns me in our own convention, there's some people who are so driven, so consumed about doctrinal fidelity that if anyone ever disagrees with them or interprets something differently than they do, they're done with them. They're more concerned about being right, I'm right, and everyone else is wrong than they are loving their brother. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important thing for us to know? He didn't say, know the law, as important as that is. He says, the greatest thing in my kingdom to follow me and to know me is to love God, to worship him, and what? To get along with people. To love your neighbor, to love people. And I just, I just want to say to you this, you, you, if you and I pride ourselves in knowing Bible and doctrine, and don't hear me saying that's not important. That's to govern our lives. But if that knowledge of Scripture is not producing a desire in you to love God and to love people, then you're, you're off track. You're totally off track. And probably, uh, probably characterized by pride. Pride that I'm the one who is right and I've got it all together and I've got the corner on truth and no one else knows what I know. Pride. 
There's all kinds of possible lessons from this text, but let me propose to you what is the most important lesson from this text. A drunk king, a defiant queen, and the reality of divine providence. Of divine providence. Psalm 95 declares, the Lord is a great God a great king above all gods. Psalm 96 commands us to say to the nations that the Lord reigns. It means that our God is sovereign. That's the lesson. He is always working. God is working in your life and through your life, working to bring forth his purposes even when you and I don't see it. The Bible tells us that God is mysterious. His ways are what? Higher than whose ways? Our ways. God's thoughts, his wisdom is higher than whose thoughts? Our thoughts. It's a mystery how someone can sin and do evil which God does not predetermine in their life and still work through it for his glory. Let me give you an example of that. In Genesis chapter 37, you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers and his brothers' sin against Joseph, which we know God did not tempt those brothers to do. You say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible says, let no one say when they are tempted that God tempted them, for God does not tempt any of us to sin. God is not tempting you to sin. God is not wanting you and I to sin. He never predetermines that you and I sin. What does it say? It says that each person is tempted to sin and drawn drawn and enticed away, not by God, but what? By their own sinful desires, by our own flesh. The point is Joseph's brothers sinned against Joseph because they were enticed by their own sinful nature. God was not then nor today the author of any sin. If you decide tonight to go in your vehicle and stop by the liquor store and buy you a bottle of alcohol and you drink to the point of inebriation and you get behind that car wheel and you drive down the road and you cause an accident, You cannot argue that God tempted you to drink that alcohol. Those brothers sinned against God and sinned against Joseph and sinned against his family because they, just like you and me, have freedom that God has given to us to make some choices of our own. Years later, Joseph looks back on the sinful actions of his brothers toward him and says this, while you brothers sinned against me and sinned against God and planned this evil, what? God still used it for good. What good? What what good? The Bible is very clear. God used it for good to bring about his purpose of delivering his people from famine, from starvation. Listen, it's one of the great mysteries of God that God works through all things, even our sins, to accomplish his purposes. 
In Esther, God works through a series of sinful choices and decisions by a drunk king and a defiant queen that he never initiated nor prevented, and he works through it to achieve his plan. Let me give you some examples, specifically. God did not cause Ahasuerus to get drunk, but he didn't prevent it, which he could have. God did not cause the evil plan by King Ahasuerus' advisors, but he could have intervened and stopped it. God did not cause Ahasuerus' decision to get rid of the king, but he could have stopped it. God did not cause a foolish decree to go out from the kingdom to find a new queen, but he could have stopped it. But God, yet God, in his good Gracious providence works through all of those sinful decisions to still achieve his purposes. I, found that, I find that amazing. And I have found that to be true in my own life when I've sinned against God and sinned against people as I repented of it and continue to keep my eyes on it. Somehow God still redeemed it. He still works through it. And while I cannot explain the mystery of God's sovereignty and question those who say they can. They can fully explain God's sovereignty. Well, I can't explain it. I want to tell you this, church. I find comfort in it. I rest in it and trust that he is working, Romans 8, 28. He's working all things together for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In this story, as this villain Haman is working, as we'll see later, to position himself to a place of power, of going so far as to recommend that all of the Jews be annihilated. God is working in his providence. He's far ahead. He's in control to raise up another person to serve as a deliverer, thus Queen Esther. Aren't you glad Aren't you thankful this morning that God is faithful to his word? Can you ever think of a time when you went to scripture and you saw a promise of God to you? Can you ever think of a time when God lied, when God wasn't faithful? He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his covenant. And even when we sin and fail and are faithless, when we fail to trust God and we fail and when we walk in our flesh and sin, but God has still promised never to divorce us. You need never fear that God is going to divorce you for your failures, for your sins. He's faithful. God has raised up another person in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who walked and lived in the spirit, who never yielded to the flesh. Hebrews says, seeing then we have a great high priest, Jesus, the son of God, who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast to our faith, our confession, our profession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, with our temptations, but one who is tested, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He was a sinless sinless sacrifice, lived fully in the spirit, never yielded to the flesh, tempted in all points as we are, and overcame them all. Therefore, his death, his sacrifice was perfect. 
and sufficient to atone for our sins. We sing about it. His blood washes over all of our sins and covers us. And somehow, even still yet in our sins, God is faithfully working to bring forth his purposes in our lives and in the life of his church. Oh, what grace. Oh, what grace that constrains us. Oh, what grace that compels us to live for him, to trust in him, and to trust in his nature, and to trust in his providence. I invite you to bow with me in prayer.